Welcome back to Audience, a Castos original experience. Broadcasting from the center of your audio universe, where the most creative podcasters find their home at castos.com. Press play right here in your podcast player every week. It's like a cheat sheet for marketing, monetizing, and growing your podcast. So good, you'll want to share castos.com slash audience with your closest friends. Okay, Audience starts now. Hey there, listener. Welcome back to the Audience Podcast special guest Today, Paulina Salmas. Paulina, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. You're the uh, the creator, the host, the mind <laughs> behind an eyesore and a plague.com. An eyesore and a plague.com. That domain doesn't say anything about New York City, but I'm sure the <laughs> the listener will learn a little bit more about New York, about your podcast as we chat here today. I ran into you in Twitter spaces, and as I'm always looking for new folks uh, to join us on audience to teach us how they do podcasting, I heard you speak in some Twitter spaces, I checked out your podcast, and I was like, Paulina is a great guest for the show. Let me just ask you real quick, is Twitter spaces, has that been a pretty good thing for you to promote yourself and, and what you're doing with the podcast? Yeah, um, Twitter Spaces is, it, it seems like tailor-made for podcast people because it's just audio and it's just really fun to, you know, be in this group with other people in the podcasting space and to meet people and, you know, have unscripted conversations. So it's pretty cool. Have you found, um, I know sometimes us podcasters, we're, we're data nerds. <laughs> we start to look at the data, the downloads, the stuff like that. Have you noticed a little spike or a little bump in listenership with your podcast because of Twitter spaces? Yeah, definitely you know, a couple more downloads here and there, and probably you could go back to uh, the Twitter spaces and and see a correlation. Mm. The podcast that you're producing that you're that we're talking about today, an eyesore and a plague. How would you categorize the type of podcast it is for? Like for the podcaster, narrated show, scripted show, nonfiction. Go ahead, give us how you would categorize this particular show. It is definitely a scripted um, narrative nonfiction podcast. The genre is a little hard for me to pin down. Uh, maybe the listener would it would be easier for them because you know just coming at it from a fresh perspective. But it's a little bit of history. Um, it's a little bit of culture, and it's history that I feel is very relevant to uh, things today. And it's just history repeating itself, I feel. A lot of folks listening to this, to the audience episode, a lot of Castos customers, um, we're starting our podcasts off by either doing like a solo show or the low-hanging fruit, and I don't want to offend anybody, but the low-hanging fruit of the interview show. I mean, we're doing it right now. This is the lowest form of hanging fruit that we can find in the podcasting spaces, folks, like you and me sitting in a room and recording this. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of folks just go to it because it's easier, it's a little bit more uh, understandable, you know, easier to edit and produce. A scripted, non-fictional show seems pretty tough to me. <laughs> <laughs> How much effort and work do you put into the show in a given week? It is a lot of work. It's I thought it was going to be a lot of work, and somehow it ended up being even more. But I also really love interview shows. And when I was first starting, I was like, I'm going to make this really easy for myself. I'm going to have a loose script. I'm going to follow it loosely. And the script just got more and more inflexible. It was like... 
it's kind of a lot to remember. Um, there's a lot of background that I really want people to know so that they could really enjoy the plot line. So I just really wanted that to be scripted. And then the rest of it kind of followed from there. Do you find yourself writing, I know this might sound pretty silly to you and, and maybe to the seasoned podcaster, and maybe I don't even know why I'm asking it, but I'll ask you anyway. Do you find yourself writing every single word of the script, or do you go off script and sort of ad lib or bring in some color commentary, for lack of a better phrase, as you're recording the show? And I'll give you a second just to think about that, because sometimes I'll script an entire episode of, let's say, audience, especially if I'm teaching somebody about, I don't know, three key things in podcasting. You know, I'll have my entire script, but then sometimes I'll go off with an example, a real world example that I might think of in the moment. Does that happen to you, or is it just like word for word, I write it out? and I, I record it. I follow the script pretty much word to word. Um, but when I am recording, I try to uh, demo it a few times. And I just read through it um, until it sounds to be pretty natural. And sometimes when I'm reading through it, I find a sentence that works perfectly fine as a written sentence, and it <laughs> does not come out of my mouth. So I, I do try to, um, you know, write it so that I could speak it. And then so the revision process in- includes saying it out loud and then thinking of how it might sound more natural. I do a, well, I do a bunch of podcasts, but there's one that I do uh, on the side of personal podcasts. And it's, it's quite literally, it's a five minute podcast, right? It's, it's news and updates about the software called WordPress. And uh, it's a scripted show. I write out the script. It's quite literally just news headlines, what's happening in the WordPress world, five minutes, that's the hook. And then I'll, I'll write out a script. And then sometimes I start speaking it and I'm like, what are you saying here? <laughs> like, what are you trying to do with these words? And a five minute show can sometimes take me the 20 minutes to, you know, record uh, your latest episode titled Bronxville is a 48 minute and 13 second episode. Do you recall how long that actually took you to write and record? That was one of those things where just time had no meaning anymore. I was just (laughs) in the room. I was trying not to leave the recording room that I have because I wanted my same bike placement the whole time. So I was taking um, every couple pages, I tried to take a break and not move too much. And I think it took like at least two and a half hours. Wow. That's just recording or is that writing it as well? That was recording it. Wow. And what about writing an episode like that? Research, writing? I mean, that must be hours and hours. I think it's maybe um, 14 hours uh, for the writing. And then the research is, um, I I don't even know how to estimate that because sometimes (laughs) I go on You don't want to (laughs) estimate it is what you're saying. I don't even want to think about how much time I spent. Yeah. We, when we chatted in our pre-interview, we talked about the why. We talked about the why of, you know, starting a podcast like this. Air quotes, again, not going the easy route of doing either a solo, you know, monologue or just uh, an interview show. You, you brought up things like, you know, w- we hear things in, in New York City, like village versus a city, you know, wanted to talk about history then versus now. Can you illustrate to the listener the why uh, you started this in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So um, during the pandemic, I was at home a lot more than I usually am. And I live in um, a village in Westchester County, which is north of the city. It's probably like 
you know, 40 minutes by train. And I was just thinking about, you know, the place that I live. And I had a lot of questions that were just like ungoogleable. Like, what is a village? Why is it called a village? Um, a village is in a town. Is there like a hierarchy? Is, is the town supervisor more important than the mayor of the village? And for whatever reason, it was just really hard to find answers to these questions. I just came to realize that these are questions that the people who work in government, they just kind of internalize the answer. And it just becomes like basic background knowledge. And it's just one of those things that nobody bothers to share with general people. So I wanted to share that with everyone and also uh, tell the story about how some of those villages got started. Thanks for, you just titled the show for me, creating an ungoogleable <laughs> podcast. That's a fantastic phrase, and I'm going to steal that uh, for the title of the show. I'm going to pull a, just a, an excerpt from uh, the definition that you have on your, on your website, uh, and I quote, this is the story of how New York's turn-of-the-century millionaires incorporated their private homes as legal municipalities and how they used their new power to exclude outsiders, dodge local taxes, and attempt to uh, recreate feudal Europe in New York suburbs. Suburbs. And I said when we had our pre-interview, hey, it sounds just like 2022. <laughs> like, <laughs> like not much has changed. Uh, and, and, and I think you said like, yeah, I want to get this on, a, on an even playing field. Like I want folks to know like the genesis of something that where this stuff came from to, you know, one, you can compare and contrast, but two, hey, guess what? Rich folks are doing the same things uh, hundreds of years later. Uh, and, and that's, would you say that's a fair statement? I guess I should say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things that I'm just constantly disappointed by is the fact that all these things that happen today that I feel like we should have progressed beyond, like everyone should be like nicer and more open-minded. And it's just kind of the same. They had the same ideas back then. And we're just still grappling with the same ideas. And a hundred years is a long time, but it's also not. Like there's people who are 100 years old, there's people that remember their great-grandfathers and their grandfathers and, you know, people that were around back then. And that's just kind of something that I found over and over again. When we, again, chatted, we talked about, like, goals. A lot of folks starting a podcast, you know, I try to implore folks to have some kind of goal in mind. Like, what is it you want to do? A lot of people just do it because they love the craft of it. They love the thing that they're talking about. And there's no real maybe monetary goal. We didn't get into this in the in the pre-interview, but do you have, is there a final chapter uh, in this series of audio that you're putting out, a goal that might be a timeline for you for something like this? The podcast isn't monetized right now. And you know, I would love to do that just so I could keep you know working on these episodes because they do take a lot of time. And Right now, I just kind of want people to listen to it. I would love if people shared it with a friend or shared it on social media if they enjoy the podcast. Uh, we did chat about like the audience, and and again, the reasons why you got into this is you wanted like you looked at podcasting from afar, and you're like, I want to be in this space. And I think like every maybe. Um, I'll call you an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur in the audio space. Like you think like, I'm just going to go create something and I'm going to just get myself into the weeds and I'll find myself in podcasting and what happens happens. I'd imagine the audience, 
well, these are my thoughts, and then you can illustrate yours. I, I would imagine the audience comes from New York, from New York City, question mark, or are you finding a broader audience across the country, if not the world? We are getting a lot of listeners, um, you know, from Europe and from, you know, a lot of people from D.C. and California, which is really surprising to me. And, of course, I'm very happy to hear that, you know, people from these different places seem to be, you know, listening to, you know, multiple episodes and enjoying it. But the bulk of the listeners are from New York. Which might actually help you with, like, future advertising or sponsorship, right? Because you kind of know the, you know, the people, you know, the the culture, you know, the city, and maybe somebody local should be sponsoring this. And it, it doesn't have to be a mattress company. <laughs> <laughs> Although you probably want mattress company money <laughs> to, to sponsor the show, which is always a good thing. Is there anything throughout your research and throughout creating this audio art has there been a standout story to you, a big surprise in your in your research? You're like, wow, I never even I never even knew that, but here I am. I just uncovered this thing. Is there a story that you really appreciate the most out of your own work? So when I was researching uh, when I was researching the Bronxville episode, I was just completely floored by that story because I actually live in Tuckahoe, and the idea that the people in Tuckahoe wanted to incorporate this gigantic village that included parts of Bronxville is just so strange to me because, you know, just because those two places are like, you have to like drive up a hill to get to Bronxville. They seem like two completely separate places. So just like thinking of as a thought experiment, like what if this was one place that was something personally that was really surprising. And a lot of people that are from Bronxville and Tuckahoe, they kind of, they hear the episode, they kind of um, stumble with that. They're like, but should Tuckahoe be that big? And it's like, I guess why not? It would be normal if it was, but now it just seems weird. What was, I mean, without, I guess, maybe without giving away everything, but you do have, hold on, I should have been prepared for this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine episodes in this particular Bronxville episode what was the reason? Like, why were they trying to expand? Uh, I guess for lack of a better phrase, why were they trying to expand or just like kind of own everything, if you will? So in Tuckahoe, they had really sophisticated local politicians and they wanted the tax base of this one part of Bronxville. And they had a really good argument for why they should have that because the original reason for a village was so that you could have a tax base and support this commercial area that's not big enough to be a city, but it's still pretty commercial. So they wanted part of Bronxville so that they could have this big tax base and do really good things in Tuckahoe and like upgrade the streetlights and what have you. And the people in Bronxville were like, no, we don't like Tuckahoe. It's a little bit seedy. They have bars there. We, that's <laughs> This is going so back wrong. some time then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have gambling. We don't do gambling. Like, why would you want to do that? And so they kind of completely flipped out and um, ended up appealing to a judge that was really sympathetic to them, who just kind of rewrote the rules a little bit so that Bronxville could incorporate first and avoid Tuckahoe taking it over. How was that even possible? Like, one neighboring village could just kind of say, yeah, we want to own more now and just do it? 
Like nobody had to get rifles and, and torches <laughs> and come like knocking on the doors to, to get that land. Yeah, to incorporate, you just need the, you pick out which area you want to be in your new village. So it wasn't incorporated before, but you pick up the area that you want. As long as it's in the same town, you can have it. And once you are incorporated, um, you have like a protection against people like annexing parts of the place where you live. So it's kind of, in a lot of cases, it was like a race to incorporate and to take that area or to block people from taking it. Wow. Now we know why this country is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was that easy, uh, you know, back then to just do that. What Do you know what it takes, what it took to incorporate back then? Was it, I can imagine it was probably pretty minimal, like people and votes, money involved? I don't... Yeah, so in the beginning, you needed um, 250 people to incorporate. And in the earlier eps, um, I talk about how that was too many people for some people because people lived on an estate and they had a staff of maybe 50 people because they were so rich. And they were like, why do I need to be part of like an, a bigger municipality? I could just be my own municipality. And the reason why is for tax reasons, because they didn't want like people taking their money to like build a park or something. <laughs> how dare how dare they <laughs> so um what they what they did was they went to the legislature and because absolutely nobody was paying attention it got like no news coverage whatsoever at the time they were like let's make it 50 people and so for uh, between like 1911 and 1931 you could incorporate a village only 50 people and just you just had to get them to agree to it. And because the people were, um, you know, the employees, they're not going to say, no, I don't want to be a village. They're just going to go along with it. Yeah, they want to get paid. <laughs> so, I mean, wow, that's amazing. Does that law still stand? Or was that like destroyed after they realized 50 people to a village was nuts? <laughs> so um, they increased it, I think, to 500 people. Um, during the Depression, they were like, uh, we need everyone to just spend their tax money where they live. We can't have people being selfish. You know, there's people starving to death. So they increased it to 500. And that is, I believe, the same number. I'm pretty sure it's the same number today. So I want to start a village. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a couple places in Westchester that are trying to start villages. And it's... Um, been like uh, this weird little dance that the town is going through with the people because, you know, they want to spend their taxes on themselves and they kind of have the ability to do that. And um, you have to really go into like really kind of torture the law to get them to stop because all you need is 500 people. Are you doing an episode on that? Because that would be like a great like future episode. Like, yeah, I spent my time 100 years ago, but here's what's actually happening now in the current day. Yeah, I would definitely love to do an episode on that. It's, it's in the works. We need to future. get a sponsor for Paulina to do this episode. If you're listening <laughs> to this and you want to fund this, you should definitely, uh, definitely reach out uh, because that sounds amazing. How does one even... They can just, what well, they try to do, like extract themselves from the town that they're in, create a village, and then does Comcast just say, oh, no more cable internet to you because now you're a village? Like, I don't even understand how people could like, execute that. It's, it's fascinating. You know, the status quo stays kind of, but 
in the future, you have a lot of tools that you can use to like not spend your taxes on people who live outside and for whatever reason, you know, why you don't want to spend your taxes on them. Do you have, a, you know, and something, you know, God, if I was a better podcaster, I would have asked you these questions in the pre-interview, but is your background in journalism or art and culture? What's your background that, that allows you to do such rich content? No, I just, you know, learned how to just research until you kind of find the bottom. Yeah, that's amazing. Can we talk about tropicalfishvintage.com for a second? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so Tropical Fish Vintage, amazing domain name. Tell me what that what that's all about. So that is um, a website where um, I built this blog and you can go there and learn how to fix your Wurlitzer electronic piano because I still have a lot of them. Um, but I just became very obsessed with this kind of keyboard and... Um, you know, now John and I, we fix them, but it's one of those things where you, it's hard to get information about it because they stopped making it 40 years ago. And I was, you know, finding all these people and they kind of had the same questions. So I was like, let's just write it. Just anything I know about these keyboards, like, is it proprietary? Like it's been out of business for 40 years. And I uh, just put it on the website and there's a um, page on the website that's called the Whirly Hotline. And if you have a question about your Wurlitzer and it's like, you know, throwing sparks at you or some crazy thing like that, you could email us and we'll try to help you. I think, Paulina, do you have like a time machine? Because like your day job <laughs> is in the past. Your love for <laughs> podcasting is in the past. You love the past. Is there a connection there? Maybe that's what it is subconsciously. I don't know. TropicalFishVintage.com seems like the perfect platform for a podcast. Keyboards, audio, telling a story about like where a keyboard, maybe you purchased one or uh, I almost said remodeled, but rebuilt or uh, refashioned, however you do it, restored it. Seems like a lot of story in depth there. Is that uh, maybe next on the on the podcast block to do? Yeah, definitely. That was kind of the first idea I had for a podcast was the history of the Wurlitzer Company, which started in the 1850s. And it just became like this kind of all-consuming project that I felt was never going to end. And um, <laughs> COVID <laughs> happened, and I realized that to do it right, uh, you would need to go to these archives, you need to go to like the Library of Congress and read the Wurlitzer papers. And like, I'm not like affiliated with the university and nobody's paying me. So like, I don't know how I would be able to go there for like two weeks and just like read a bunch of old papers. So that's why I scrapped that one. This company just ended. No, no takeover, like Yamaha keyboards didn't come in and buy them or anything like that. There's no company like still doing something along the lines. So unfortunately, when it ended, they stopped with the keyboards, they got really into like schools and they wanted it like it was for school children. They really wanted to sell these keyboards in bulk to schools. And then digital keyboards came out and completely destroyed it because the Wurlitzer is like semi acoustic. It has uh, like pickups like a guitar and it's like 130 pounds. So when people started having digital keyboards, they were like, no, we don't need these anymore. And then it just completely went out of business, but they made jukeboxes. And so they sold their um, like intellectual property, I think, to Gibson. And you could still buy a Wurlitzer jukebox, I think, in Europe. 
So there is opportunity for you to make like a pilot episode right? and find somebody in the Gibson department in, in, the, in Europe and just say, hey, look, here's my pilot episode. Would you sponsor me for $50,000 to create this series of podcasts? It's, it's really that easy. You know? yeah. It's really that easy uh, to yeah. do something it's like that. It's a great like Shakespearean story about like a man who's uh, self-made and his three sons who work together and kind of hate each other too. So <laughs> somebody somebody really should let me do that. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you the the father-son relationship in business is tough. I've I've been there. Uh you know, not to the level of hating, but it's difficult <laughs> to go and have, you know, your dad as head of the company but you have all these other ideas and you know there's that oil and water uh, connection. It's tough. Bringing it back to the uh, beginner podcaster, the podcaster who's listening to this and saying, "You know what?" I love what I heard. I love the research side of it. I too want to figure out how to uncover these, you know, really unique stories of of like people trying to start a village in the year 2022. What's your advice for anyone who might be thinking? Uh, do you have any tips or pointers for maybe research organization time boxing on how to manage a project like this now that you can look back on it uh, eight or nine episodes later? I think that I would advise people who want to do a project like this to just really, I guess when I was making it, there were kind of moments where I was like, wow, this is really cool. I just want to like tell people right this second. And I had to really overcome that and take a step back and be like, no, it, it really needs to be finished before I send it out. So I, I think I would tell someone that, you know, if it takes six months, it's, it takes six months, we're all going to be here. And if having an extra week to work on it works for you, you should just take the extra week because in the end, it's like this project, I would just like it to be up there. Um, it's not really it, like you can listen to it anytime. It's not going to change. The uh, <laughs> 1920s happened and it's all still going to be true six months from now. So I, I guess just like the the patience and, and just like giving yourself the the grace to really let yourself do a good job without uh, being concerned about throwing it out there as fast as possible. I like what you do on the Instagram page, Eyesore Plague on Instagram, Eyesore Plague. We'll link that up in the show notes as well. You know, you have uh, what I'd imagine are these uh, scan, scan in scans of uh, newspaper articles at the time, looking at the most recent one from January 11th, title is Shotguns Enter Beach Dispute, <laughs> right? And you can click over and read a little bit more uh, of what was happening in that time period. That's a really cool way to m promote the show and add a little bit of extra content, a little bit more tactile feel to this whole thing and not just the audio. It's a very nice touch. Yeah, thank you. I For Instagram, I really want to just do something that was visual and that people, I, I feel like your content for social media really has to be created for the platform, uh, which is why I wanted these like kind of like pretty colorful visual slides for, for yeah. Instagram. What do you have a tool that you use for Instagram to make these slides? I do it in Photoshop. I have a, uh, like a square template that I made for myself. And audiograms, are you using something like Headliner or Descript? Some of these we can play here on, on Instagram. I'm making those in Premiere. Oh, wow. Cool. Nice. A lot more work in Premiere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a better product, right, at the, end, uh, at the end of the day. 
Where else can folks go to find you? We have an eyesore and a plague.com. That's the website. Check it out. Eyesore Plague on Instagram. Anywhere else folks can find you to say thanks? Yeah, we're on Twitter, Eyesore Plague, and we have a Facebook page. And that's it right now. If you're hanging out in any uh, Twitter spaces uh, or in the podcast community in Twitter and you're in a Twitter space, you'll uh, probably see Paulina there hanging out, chatting with her. It's a great way to stay connected uh, on Twitter, especially. And look, I'm telling you right now, if you're a potential sponsor, there's work to be done. <laughs> I want to hear the story uh, go uh, further and deeper. Uh, so reach out and sponsor an episode. If at the very least, go buy a world Sir keyboard, even if you don't know what it is. <laughs> it's got a cool name. Uh, <laughs> check out tropicalfishvintage.com. Polina, thanks for hanging out today and, and doing the show. Thank you. Everybody else, this is the Audience Podcast, castos.com slash audience. Don't forget to subscribe to us every week uh, in your podcast player, and we'll roll the outro right now. <laughs>